Tell it to the judge on Sunday. Tell it to him, leave me alone. Tell it to the judge on Sunday. You can call him at home. Welcome to Towards Illustrated, Episode 8. I'm your host, Marie. Wait, disclaimer time. I am a lawyer. I am not your lawyer. This show is for fun, and we here at Torts Illustrated do not dispense legal advice. If you want legal advice, hire a lawyer. If you've done something bad enough, the government might even give you one. Okay, now, welcome to Torts Illustrated, where we discuss all things weird and wacky in the law from Old England to today. You know, sometimes the topic for this podcast comes from the careful reading of legal magazines and discussing with other attorneys and deep thought, and sometimes it just comes out of running out of internet. I don't know about you guys, and I imagine this is a pretty common thing, but whenever I'm having an evening at home and I finish my normal run of news, email, and social media, I tend to end up in weird Wikipedia spirals. I start off with a simple topic, and then... Before I know it, I'm looking at biographies of serial killers or pictures of creepy deep-sea fish. It's always creepy deep-sea fish. I should probably be reading a book or something with this time, but hey, at least I'm learning things. And this past weekend, my spiral took me deep into the world of cults and crazy churches. Specifically, Westboro Baptist Church. I got into articles about Megan Phelps Roper, who is a really interesting character, She was deeply involved with the church as the grandchild of its founder, and she ran all of the church's social media accounts. And it was actually through Twitter that she met people that made her start questioning the church and its beliefs. It's kind of cool to see a positive story coming from Twitter, considering how it gets used these days. Now, she finally left the church along with her sister and now openly speaks about things that are pretty counter to the church's view, like love, tolerance, and acceptance. I definitely recommend listening to her TED Talk because it is so lovely to see a physical manifestation of people rejecting hate, even when it's been drilled into them since childhood, and even if rejecting it means rejecting their family and their home and everything they love. It's terrifying, and it's brave, and we could all learn a lot from Megan Phelps Roper. So how does all of this lead into a topic for a law-focused podcast? Well, one of the interesting things about the Phelps family, who make up the body of Westboro Baptist Church, is that many, many of them are lawyers. They are also awful. So that combination means that they get sued a lot, and they sue people a lot. And when they do get sued, they fight back hard. Which means we have a lot of Phelps cases we can talk about, and we'll get to three of them today, But first, let's talk a little bit about the background of Westboro Baptist Church, just in case anyone has been living under a rock and doesn't know who these guys are. Westboro Baptist Church is technically a primitive Baptist church, which is a very conservative type of Baptist church that generally follows most of the tenets of Calvinism, although they do reject some of them, and they're typically very family-centric. However, this category is really broad, so please don't think that I'm lumping all Baptist churches or even all primitive Baptist churches in with Westboro. But that's certainly the well from which they got their start. In the 1950s, a young Fred Phelps was living in California and acting as a street preacher while attending college. He gained some local notoriety preaching many of the things that Westboro Baptists would later become infamous for. Mostly, in this case, about the sins of his fellow students like profanity, lusts of the flesh, and promiscuous petting. Phelps eventually married and moved to Topeka, Kansas, 
where he became a preacher at Eastside Baptist Church. That position didn't last very long, and the following year he began his own church, Westboro Baptist. His new church was big on the doctrine of predetermination, meaning that only a small group of people are chosen from the beginning of time to be saved, and also the concept of scriptural literalism, or reading the Bible exactly as what it says, or at least what you think it says. All in all, his preaching has always been focused on the idea of a coming judgment day where the wrath of God will come upon the world and the righteous will be saved. The rest of us, well, we're going down in flames. This kind of preaching quickly alienated the more moderate among his congregation, and pretty soon Westboro was made up of entirely friends and family of Fred Phelps. Now, in 1964, Fred Phelps got a law degree and began his own firm. And this is where the story takes kind of a weird turn. He actually began his career litigating civil rights cases, largely on behalf of African-American clients who had been discriminated against by schools, police, electric companies, and other governmental organizations in Topeka. He also represented women alleging gender discrimination against local universities. So this man, Fred Phelps, who spawned so much hate, actually used his law degree to do some very good things at first. And he was hated in the community not because of his preaching, but because he was fighting for equality among the races, something that wasn't very popular in Topeka, Kansas at the time. Unfortunately, his legal career went off the rails in a spectacular fashion. In 1977, he brought suit against a court reporter because she didn't have a transcript ready when he requested it in a previous case. And despite the fact that that transcript actually had no effect on the result of his case at all, he definitely had a vendetta against his court reporter. When he sued her, he treated her as a hostile witness. He called her a slut on the stand. He subpoenaed her ex-boyfriends and tried to bring their testimony into the case, uh, implied that she participated in lewd sexual acts, and he made her cry on the stand. Needless to say, he lost this case. But not only did he lose, the court found that he had also lied in a lot of the documents, and he had acted completely unprofessionally and outside the bounds of legal ethics. And so he was disbarred in the state of Kansas. Now, he was still allowed to practice in federal cases, and luckily for the Phelps law firm, many of his children had become lawyers too by this point. Most prominently, his daughter Shirley Phelps Roper, who is a pretty common name because for many years she was also a spokesperson for the church. In the 80s, after even more complaints, he agreed to stop practicing in federal courts too. So Fred Phelps retired entirely from the law. And that was the end of his career as a champion for the people as his children took over his firm. Unfortunately for all of us, this allowed him a lot more time to focus on his other career as a preacher teaching us all that God only saves a select few and the rest of us will burn in hell. Now, Phelps' church is still largely made up of his own family and only has about 70 members. So if they were just left to their own devices, we wouldn't know that much about them, nor would we care. But in the 1990s, Fred Phelps began what the church is most infamous for now, which is their picketing activities. Starting in Kansas and expanding nationwide, Westboro Baptist began picketing all sorts of events, from concerts to football games to funerals, carrying signs detailing all the things that they hate. Um, signs like saying, um, you know, after 2001 that uh, God caused 9-11 because he hates us, saying horrible things against the gay community, horrible things against soldiers, horrible things against 
pretty much all the things that they hate. And boy, is that a long list of things that they hate. Homosexuality, soldiers, Catholicism, Islam, Protestantism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Ethiopian Orthodoxy, okay, pretty much all religions, the KKK, which I'll give them that one. I found something I agree with Westboro Baptist on. And of course, they also hate Obama, who they believe is the Antichrist and part of an unholy trinity along with Satan and the Pope. As you can imagine, their members often need to hold two signs in each hand just to protest everything they want to cover. And when I say they're members, I don't just mean adults. They often bring children to these protests, too. It's very jarring to see a picture of an innocent-looking child carrying signs upon signs covered with hate. Perhaps their most well-known views are their anti-gay positions and their protests of funerals, including the funerals of many decorated soldiers and their attempt at protesting the funerals of the victims of the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting as well as their protest of the funeral of Matthew Shepard, who was beaten to death because of his sexuality. Obviously, I'm not doing a good job displaying any objectivity here, and it's coming through how repulsive I find this church. But I did help them out a little. According to their website, which has a horrible URL that I am not going to promote, 87 people were cast into hell by God while I viewed their page. I actually watched the number tick up for a little bit. So, you're welcome, Westboro Baptist, and... Sorry, 87 people. But, you know, at least if you're in Westboro Baptist's version of hell, a lot of cool people are going to be there. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Westboro gets sued an awful lot. But with a built-in legal department in the form of the Phelps family firm, Westboro also does a lot of suing on their own behalf. They're really well-equipped to do it, and a lot of them have argued very significant cases because you don't have to be normal to be a good lawyer. Some of them have even argued in front of the Supreme Court. So rather than just focusing on one, today we're actually going to talk about three different cases brought by or against the Phelps family. Two of them are constitutional issues, we'll start there, and our final case will be a torts issue, finally hitting on the legal area which gave this podcast its very funny name. Diving into our con law cases first, these begin directly from Westboro Baptist's habit of protesting the funerals of various parties particularly soldiers, which understandably upsets a lot of people. Some of those people, as active citizens do, brought this issue to their state legislators. And many states started passing laws specifically to prevent this type of act. Illinois, for example, has a law that forbids protesting at any funeral within 200 feet of the entrance, as well as displaying any images that convey fighting words or actual or veiled threats against a person. Fighting words, or words that incite violence, and threats are both forms of speech that actually aren't protected by the First Amendment. So a lot of funeral protest laws focus in on these areas. Some are broader, though. Oklahoma completely prevents protesting at military funerals in general, and within 300 feet of any funerals. Most of them include time and distance limitations, like these 300 or 200 feet and an hour before or an hour after the funeral. And this really shows that states are already considering constitutional challenges when they're writing these laws. Remember how we talked about our levels of scrutiny last week? Do you notice how states are purposefully narrowly tailoring these laws to meet their purpose? It's clever, and it means that their law stands a better chance of withstanding a challenge if it's done very narrowly to prevent what it's intended to prevent. 
All in all, about 43 states have passed funeral protest laws to try and prevent Westboro Baptists and others like them from engaging in this sort of activity. In 2006, Congress also passed the Respect for America's Fallen Heroes Act, which prevents demonstrating in Arlington National Cemetery in D.C. unless approved by the superintendent or director of the cemetery, and also imposes those same time and distance requirements on protests. Now, these laws sound like a pretty good idea, because they achieve a good result. Families can mourn their loved ones without the impact of protesters making their pain worse. But any law which restricts the freedom of speech in some ways has the potential to be misused, and will usually get challenged, as many of these were. So let's start with my home state of Ohio, and the 2008 case of Phelps Roper v. Taft. In 2006, Ohio expanded its funeral picketing law to include a ban on protesting from an hour before to an hour after a funeral, so that whole period, and within 300 feet of a funeral. It also included a separate provision extending the 300-foot ban to encompass any funeral processions. So in case you haven't seen one before, funeral processions are generally all the rows of cars that go from either the church to the funeral home or the you know funeral home to the house, transporting the body and the mourners. And this 300-foot ban encompassed funeral processions no matter where they moved, even on public streets where they usually take place. If you've been stuck behind one of these, you know they can block off public streets for a very long chunk of time. So this ban potentially banned protesting on moving portions of public streets for who knows how long, depending on how long the procession took. Shirley Phelps Roper challenged this law as overly broad on behalf of her family and her church. She argued that her church believes that protesting is the most effective way to spread their message, and that Ohio's law puts them in fear when they're trying to exercise their rights to protest and to free speech. The district court agreed with her regarding the processions, stating that the processions provision effectively created a floating buffer zone that was way broader than its technical stated limit of 300 feet, since it would move with the procession. So one second you could be outside of the buffer zone, and when the cars moved, you could be in, within it without any movement of your own. This is really broad, and it's, it's too big of an area. So the district court struck down the procession uh, ban. But they did uphold the funeral service protection aspect, because that's a fixed 300-foot, two-hour ban. So it's 300 feet from the entrance of the church, the funeral home, the home in which it's taking place. That's a fixed area. That door's not moving, so you know whether you're inside or outside the ban area. And a two-hour ban is a set period of time. A funeral procession depends on traffic. It depends on the amount of cars. It's different. It's not a set amount of time. They also argued that this portion was okay because it's content neutral, meaning it isn't specific to Westboro's religion or beliefs. And this is another aspect that the courts will always consider, specifically in First Amendment cases. Whether the restriction on speech was adopted because someone disagreed with the message of the person speaking, or rather whether the government disagrees with the message of the person speaking, or whether it applies equally to anybody who theoretically challenges it. And in this case, anyone can protest a funeral outside the limits for any reason, and anyone would be prevented from protesting within 300 feet of a funeral home or church, even if they were protesting for what the government considered a good reason. Maybe, let's say, the person 
you know, being buried was a mass murderer or a pedophile or, I don't know, I'm having trouble thinking up a good reason to protest anyone's funeral. But theoretically, it could exist, and you would still be prevented from protesting within 300 feet of that door. So this is content neutral. Now, Phelps Roper, even though she won half of this, she of course appealed, but the Sixth Circuit affirmed the lower court decision, and they also upheld the provisions surrounding the funerals themselves. Because this limitation wasn't about specific content, the Sixth Circuit Court was free to apply intermediate scrutiny, our middle standard, rather than the hardest one here, strict scrutiny. So they were able to weigh the government interest here, which is probably the consideration that toes most closely to the public opinion in the case of Westboro Baptist. In this case, they're balancing the First Amendment rights of the Phelpses against the interests of funeral attendees. Westboro's practice is offensive, but offensive ideas aren't illegal in and of themselves. On the other hand, the state does have an interest in protecting its citizens from unwanted communication. Privacy interests are actually at play here too, although it doesn't seem obvious on the surface, because the listeners or viewers of the message at a funeral could be considered a captive audience to this message without really being able to escape it. The court has previously weighed privacy against free speech in cases considering picketing at, say, a private residence or a health clinic, and they upheld bans in those situations. And here they found it was a similar case. Although a funeral home isn't a private residence, it's a private space, and it creates a captive audience for unwanted speech. And similar to health clinics, the government has an interest in protecting citizens who are particularly vulnerable to emotional harm from speech like women entering an abortion clinic, or like people at the funeral of a loved one. All in all, weighing all of our constitutional elements here, the Sixth Circuit found that while a roving ban on protesting processions was too much, a limited, content-neutral ban on funeral protesting is okay. Now, Phelps Roper did not stop there. She also challenged a funeral protest law in Missouri, which was also passed in 2006, Apparently a great year for funeral protest laws, as well as, I think, for graduating high school. This law was a little less nuanced than Ohio's, and that becomes important. Instead of having two separate sections that are severable from each other, under which one covers funeral processions and one covers funeral services, they lumped them both together under the definition of a funeral. So the word funeral covered stationary services and processions. Now, a lower court upheld the law, but on appeal to the Eighth Circuit, they sided with Phelps Roper, and it was largely because of the processionals. They held that the definition of funeral was way too broad, and it provided citizens with no guidance as to what could be a picket zone and what was a picket-free zone at any time. Because these provisions weren't separated out, though, this took down the whole law. They also made a very different point than the Sixth Circuit in regards to spreading a Westboro Baptist-style message at a funeral. While the Sixth Circuit wanted to protect funeral attendees from being trapped by this message and made into a captive audience, the Eighth Circuit actually found that Phelps made a good point when she argued that those who protest in a military funeral are specifically trying to reach that audience and spread their message to those people. And so that's really the only place that they can find them. And preventing them from spreading their message there is preventing their message entirely, if that's their specific audience. So the Eighth Circuit decided to strike down Missouri's entire funeral protest law. So folks, with these two cases and others spread throughout the country, we currently have a good old-fashioned circuit split. 
Different courts are applying the law differently in different areas of the country. And y'all, this is not a bug in our legal system, it's actually a feature. This is exactly what our courts and our state legislatures are, are supposed to do. Justice Brandeis coined the term for this. He called it the laboratory for democracy. So in his words, a state may, if its citizens choose, serve as a laboratory and try novel social and economic experiments without risk to the rest of the country. And this is so frickin' important. We have this dual federal and state system, and it gives states enough autonomy to essentially serve as incubators for change. The theory is that by allowing states to pass laws, try things out, challenge them in courts, uphold them or strike them down and elevate them, we can sort of use the scientific method, but on our laws. States propose a hypothesis, so to speak, by passing a law. We test it in the courts. And in the end, we resolve the whole experiment in our Supreme Court or through the passage of a federal law. We've seen this play out time and again. We've seen it play out in marriage equality, in desegregation. We're starting to see it play out right now with the legalization of marijuana, where we have different states and different circuits with very different laws happening right now. And eventually, this is going to become enough of an issue that it's going to get resolved. So when those state laws push against each other so much that it's hard to live like that, the courts resolve it through a challenge, or the federal government decides to resolve it with a law going one way or the other. It's fascinating, and right now we're in the middle of this process for funeral protest laws, because we've got a circuit split, and God knows Westboro Baptist isn't going to stop challenging these laws until they get to the Supreme Court. And while Westboro is repugnant, if this does make it up to the Supreme Court, there's a lot of battling concerns here that move beyond Westboro themselves and will affect people with no ill intentions and no horrible signs at funerals. The right to protest is important, and we've seen what happens when it gets eroded. We're still seeing it now. We're seeing people arrested nationwide for protesting this administration, and we have to think about whether we're willing to put another splinter into that pillar just to hit back at Westboro Baptist when there are ways to remedy this problem outside of the courts. There's something to be said for allowing people to remedy issues like Westboro protesters without the assistance of the judicial system as a free society. Uh, I think it was the Hells Angels, for example, that often show up to counter-protest Westboro, and they block the view of them from the mourners at funerals with lines of motorcycles and American flags. It's a peaceful method of shutting Westboro down that doesn't infringe on their freedom of speech and also neuters their message so that it doesn't hit its intended audience. Of course, we also have the privacy issues that we'd have to consider if this made it up to the Supreme Court. As much as we value our right to protest and to make ourselves heard, the right to privacy is also entrenched in our society. Families, for example, are integral to our lifestyle. Even the Phelpses would probably agree with that, considering that family is their entire church. When a part of that family unit is cut out by death, the concept of family privacy is immediately invoked because everyone grieves in a very different and personal way. As Justice Kennedy wrote in a case related to the Freedom of Information Act, family members have a personal stake in honoring and mourning their dead, and objecting to unwarranted public exploitation that, by intruding upon their own grief, tends to degrade the rights and respect they seek to accord to the deceased person who was once their own. So essentially, someone else intruding on a family funeral cuts back on your ability to celebrate and mourn that person in the very specific and private ways that your family has chosen. 
Many would argue that we have a duty to protect this specific form of privacy. So keep an eye on this issue, because I have a feeling we're going to see it playing out when this eventually hits the Supreme Court. I think it might happen within the next few years. Remember, our last wave of funeral picketing laws and cases occurred during the Bush era. And while these are important cases and significant laws, they're also great benchmarks of patriotism. It looks good to a Republican base to hit back at people who are protesting soldiers' funerals. And it's a home run, because the constitutional issues get lost in our natural urge to hurt those who hurt us, who make us feel bad about ourselves, who make us feel angry, and they try and hurt those who are weak and hurting. It's hard to stand up and say that even someone as repulsive as a Phelps family member who is yelling hate at family who are just trying to say goodbye has their right to free speech. And it's similarly hard to say that your right to free speech ends where someone else's right to privacy begins. So we have a lot of issues that are hitting on each other, but this is such a sensitive topic that it tends to be really easy to stir up a lot of passion and ignore those sensitive issues. Westboro Baptist represents hate and close-mindedness, and in response, I think we do the same thing. We close our minds and we hate back instead of thinking carefully about how we should react and how our reaction can affect our most basic freedoms in ways we don't expect. So let's see what happens. I think the Supreme Court might take this one up in the next few years with our circuit split, and we'll have to see how these issues play out. Ooh. Well, it looks like we are actually running out of time for this week, and I have only made it through two of our Westboro Baptist cases. But I really don't want to leave the last one out, because unlike our first two cases and last week's cases, it's a different approach to using the court to punish hurtful speech. That is through tort law instead of through constitutional law. So focusing on a personal injury rather than a challenge to fundamental rights. It's a cool case, and so I guess for the first time in Torts Illustrated history, we are actually going to have a two-parter. So next week we're going to stay on Westboro Baptist. We'll discuss Snyder v. Phelps, and maybe another cult-related case or two. And actually, maybe even whether there's a legal definition of cult, because while I would certainly call Westboro Baptist one, I'm not certain the law would agree. Special thanks this week goes to the Museum Institute. Their First Amendment Center Online has done a ton of research on this topic, and it was a great jumping-off point for the material that I researched for this episode. As always, if you've got cases you'd like to hear about, or you just want to tell me this podcast is terrible, you can email me at tortsillustratedpodcast at gmail.com. I also welcome notes on the quality of my legal analysis and on my pronunciation of Louisiana parishes. So until next week, this has been Torts Illustrated. I'm your host, Marie, asking that when you kill all the lawyers, please spare me. Mm-hmm.